Omagyanakmirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chakshurun Militam Yena Tasmai Sigurve Namaha Ajunulambita Bujo Kanakabadatu Sankitanai Kapitaro Kamalaya Taksho Vishpamboro Dvijaboro Yugadharma Palo Vande Jagat Priyakuro Karuna Bhutaro Vande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nitananda Sodito Gododai Pushpabanto Chitra Sangha Tamunudo He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dinabandhu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kanta Radhakanta Namustute the Kanchana Gurangi Radhe Brindamanishwari Prashabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Shri Guru Vaishnav Guru Pamparati Jai Hari Nam Prabhu Ki Jai Kohul Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai Please Welcome, everyone. Um, tonight you will be excited again to see Tripurari Maharaj and as he speaks about his, his new project in Costa Rica. And being a spiritualist as he is, you know, when you talk about a project, you can come from it from very many angles. You can come from it from the environmental side, from, you know, community side, and he's, being a spiritualist, is coming at it from the soul side. What is the soul of sustainability? So we will hear from him tonight about this, as well as the wonderful practical things that he has done in his um, community in Costa Rica. And thank you very much for taking the time to come and, mm-hmm. and share your projects with us. And thank you all for coming and taking your time and to be with us and, and share this night with us. I'm really glad you're here and I'm very happy. I hope I can be able to serve you tonight. Thank you, Thank you. So, good evening, everyone. And um, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been here number of times, and so some of you have met before. Some of my students, friends are here also, I see. Um, it's always a pleasure to come here and, and uh, share my, my thoughts. I find that they, uh, they grow here, also in the company of uh, enthusiastic listeners, so it's a kind of a participatory event of mutual... Uh, Enlightenment, as I see it, and so I thank you for your participation, presence, and um, um, Archie and Dulala have expressed some interest in the project that I kind of um, came to me in, in, in Central America um, over the last couple of years, and. Like thoughtful, any thoughtful people, they are themselves interested in the 
sustainable lifestyle, especially in um, economic times uh, that we are presently experiencing, that perhaps comes to the fore a little bit more readily. Um, and so I suppose on the basis of that and the idea that um, sustainable living is popular and should be more popular and it's very pragmatic, very practical and very well down to earth. Um, Archie actually asked me to speak on sustainability. I, I don't think I'm an expert on that um, in, one se- in one sense. There are people who are more qualified than me and as she has said, uh, I have a particular field of, of expertise um, which is spiritual uh, practice and, uh, and explaining uh, I guess we call spiritual theory with regard to Hinduism and Vedanta and the particular tradition within that of, of bhakti of, of uh, devotional uh, Vedanta, devotional yoga um, and I've written a number of books and whatnot on those uh, topics so that's my field of uh, expertise and not uh, necessarily sustainability, but I do have um, two monastic communities that um, would probably always be works in progress, and um, and they are, of course, uh, um, um, focused as well. I mean, as well as on spiritual practice and so forth, on sustainability in a material sense, and these two things do go well together. So I'll try to talk a little bit about that and um, and I'll say a few words about the particular project that uh, that um, seems to have perked the interest of uh, our hosts in Costa Rica. We, we, we call the place there Madhuvan. Madhuvan, it means like sweet, uh, sweet jungle, something like that. And um, so before I do that, one, one of my students who's right here with me, a close student of mine named Gurnishta, uh, he's traveling with me, and he lives with me at Audaria, which is our monastery in Northern California. I um, asked him to spend some time at Madhuvan in Central America um, last year. He was there for, what, about four months? And uh, during the time there, he and another one of my students made a short uh, video to present to me about um, how they were progressing with regard to my vision there, and uh, particularly with regard to sustainability or self-sufficiency. So I thought um, we'd play that. It's a short feature film, (laughs) if you will. and so if we do that, and then I'll, I'll go from there and see where, where it takes us. The tech technology here, willing, I'm not sure how it's going to play out on the big screen, but <laughs> it's a heartfelt kind of presentation.
So there you have a, a glimpse into the honey honey jungle, the sweet sweet jungle project of uh, Central America. Um, it's developed quite a bit uh, since the since this particular film production. But uh, what, what you saw here, um, well, when we we acquired the property, which was um, was a wonderful experience in itself. Actually, um, I one of my students suggested to me that I should have a writing. I'm an author, so she suggested I should have a writing place um, somewhere to go in the winter to get out of the rain in Northern California. And she suggested Central America. And I said, that would be a great idea <laughs> if it happens. And so anyway, then she, uh, one thing led to another. and um, She uh, found this place on the Internet. And um, so another one of my students from Holland was uh, with us at the time, and he offered to take me down. And so we went down, and um, we met the man that uh, owned this property. He had owned it for 50 or 60 years. His his, uh, his uh, second and third son were, were born on the property, and they lived there self-sufficiently, without any electricity, without a well. And, and um, by this time, they had acquired a, another small piece of property on the road where they had electricity and they were living there and the sons were grown and so forth. But this was their main, um, kind of the, the pride of their family, so to speak. And um, the uh, his uh, eldest son had sold some cows on behalf of another man and unfortunately the man he sold them to gave him a bad check and so they were in debt and the Cattlemen's Association made up of primarily lawyers rather than cowboys um, were very kind to give them a, a mortgage on their property, a lien on their property at 28% interest and uh, so you know they were farmers and these are very, it's a very extremely um, remote and rural area um, the main main um, means of transport is uh, foot or horse, um, and seldom see a, a, a car there. And um, they're all farmers, and um, some mix of Indian and Spanish blood, and and so they weren't so familiar with loans and and uh, the generosity of the Cattlemen's Association. Uh, so they, you know, he was in a, in a difficulty because they were about to take his property away after after several months, and so um, another man from Colombia, who had lived in America, had become a realtor, which doesn't require a license, which makes for unfortunately a lot of um, um, cheating in the real estate industry, and so we were kind of. We met the land through this realtor, and that was a very risky kind of business. And since we turned out to be a very honest fellow, his wife was from the states, and he was an artist and a and a photographer, and uh, and spiritually inclined, and so forth. So we were very fortunate. And through him, anyway, we met the farmer, and the farmer had this beautiful land. And we said, so we just came here to kind of look at land we we saw yours on the internet, but we can't afford it. But it's we like it, we fell in love with it, and so forth. 
And so then he began to explain the situation, which the realtor didn't even understand, and how the property was had a lien on it by different people in different places, two different cattlemen's associations, and it was quite a uh, very uh, convoluted kind of situation. So I told him, I said, I came, I said, I'll come and see you in the morning, and I, I came in the morning and I told him, I, I would like to buy your land, but I don't have the money. And I know you want me to buy it, and you went to sleep last night praying to God that you'd get a good price. And I went to sleep last night praying to God that I'd get a good price too. So that's where we're at. <laughs> and uh, I said, I can't really offer you what the, what the property's worth. And so then he talked with his son, and he told me the situation further. And I said, well, I might be able to pay these two liens. Um, and then if you want to give me part of the property, that would be nice, and you keep a part of the property. And so he was happy with that, that way, because he, he was going to lose all of his property. And it was a very good price for us. We didn't have a penny even for that. So I said, I'd like to do that. <laughs> that would be great. And so uh, he asked us to come to a meeting. We went to a meeting, and it was um, took for an eight, eight-hour eight meeting with all these um, lawyers, and uh, we didn't speak Spanish, and so we were trying to figure out what what, what it was all about. Uh, and our realtor spoke English and, and Spanish, so gradually we figured it out. And they didn't really want us to save the situation for him. They wanted him to default, and they would take the land and so on. So, but anyway, we forced the issue. And we stood up for him, and um, we uh, and we we we. we signed a contract that we'll be back in 30 days with the money or, you know, it's no deal, something like that. Um, and so we came back to America and, and people gave us the money. So we went down and bought it. And uh, and since then, the property, and it was just a jungle, at, all jungle at the time. And um, we developed it. The first thing we needed to do was to develop the power system it's it's there's no question of having uh, the power grid connected to this property it's it's very very remote and uh, we knew that it had good water and it had a river at the bottom and waterfalls in different places and so we we had an idea that we could electrify the jungle light up the jungle with um, um, by using the water hmm? And as I mentioned in the beginning, I, this is not my expertise, so we weren't kind of winging it. And um, we picked up a book and um, and um, figured out something about microhydro. And um, then we went down to the river and and uh, well, we we built a microhydro system for lighting up the jungle. And it, it, uh, on the video, you saw the. A tube, a four-inch tube, it goes for about 700 feet down the river. And at one end, the water comes in from the river. And the other end, it comes out onto the, the turbine. And that 700 feet, it's it's supported by ropes and and uh, trees and whatnot um, to be above the river, which gets quite high during the rainy season. And to bring the pressure of the water, the microhydro was nice because it's very inexpensive compared to solar or even for wind. And, um, of course, the water is more reliable than the wind, and, and it's more constant 
than the sun because it runs at night also. Um, and, and the water that's taken from the river to propel the microhydro is put back into the river. So for a short distance, some of it is taken out and then returns to the river after it lands on the, on the turbine, turns back in. So it doesn't really disturb the, the ecosystem of the river. If you took all the water, it, 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 it would to some extent, but we don't take all the water from it. We get about, um, in the rainy season, we get about, well, we could have about 10,000 gallons a minute if we, if we wanted to, but in the dry season, it goes down to a lower amount. We usually take about 100 gallons a minute from, this, from the river, and then the pressure, 700 feet down, um, is, uh, down the river is considerable, and it turns the turbines in, and the wires go up the hill and uh, to our building sites, and from there it spreads out. We convert it from DC to AC, and then it goes throughout the property. Um, so that was the first order of, uh, of, of, of business, to turn the lights on, so to speak, and and it's been a learning process. I mean, we did it, and then the rainy season came, and we had we realized there were some issues when the water became very high, <laughs> and the system washed away a couple of times. <laughs> we had to replace it, but it's pretty secure now. Um, and um, and then, of course, the second, actually, what's more important than lighting the jungle was to have water to to, to drink. And the water from the river, of course, is nice, but. It's not drinkable because it's above ground. So we had to find springs that were below the ground that were pure, and we managed to find, with the help of our previous owner, whose son well, works for us there full time now, and uh, who's kind of a, a wonderful man. I mean, when we walked on the property and he was showing it to us, and asking, you know, and wanting us to to buy it in some capacity, as we ultimately did. I looked into his eyes and I told him, I said, "What I want, I don't really want the land here." But I want the heart, uh, your, your, the heart that you have for this land that I can see in your eyes as you look around and point to me. This tree does this. This plant does this. This, this is a fruit. You can eat this at this time. Don't touch that. And and he knew everything about that property. He had such love for it. And as I say, his heart, laden with love, was glistening in his eyes as he looked and told us about the property. I said. I don't want the property. I want the love that you have for this for this land, the feeling that you have for it. And uh, you know, it was in broken Spanish that I communicated that to him. But he could see my eyes and he could feel my heart. And it was quite a, a bonding that came from that. Um, anyway, he and his son, uh, uh, who, who's working with us now, they know just everything about the land and. Uh, and they used to live down below by the river, and the sun would walk up. There's a steep, a lot of steep hills in Costa Rica, a very steep hill, walk up about uh, about a thousand feet, and then walk out and down about two thousand feet to go to school, and then come back at, at at in the evening and come down and change clothes and walk back up and walk into town to, to for shopping. And so we do this, you know, every day of this. His child was very so. These are the kind of people that we're associated with. These are our neighbors, and while we bring something to the equation of the place that's interesting and exotic, <laughs> being spiritual practitioners and being from North America and Europe and Scandinavia and so forth, um, 
they bring a much to the equation too, and they they, they see that we, we we know that they have something of value, knowledge, and understanding of how to live there, and that we want to we want to to gather that and use that, and we want to live to a large extent the way they lived, but a little bit a little bit different, a little bit you know up to date, more up to date, I suppose you could say in terms of technology and so forth. I mean, they lived without electricity. We've brought electricity, and they're fascinated by the way in which we, we've, we've done that. And so at any rate, Don Emel, our, our, our guide, so to speak, there, I have an idea to write a, a fiction novel with him as the main character, but um, he's the one that knows everything, you know, but nobody thinks he knows anything. Uh, <laughs> he uh, showed us a spring that happened to be just above every every building site that we we found on the property, which was an interesting process as well to go with him through the jungle. And he said, "There's a there's a flat area here, and there's a flat area over there, and there's a flat area. It's on a hillside. It's not a hillside, a mountainside. It's 2,500 feet at its height, and uh, our building sites begin at about 1,500 feet." And they go from 1,500 feet down the, the mountain to about uh, 700 feet, scattered on all different sides. We have about 10, 12 prominent building sites, and then hundreds of other smaller, like cabin sites and whatnot. Um, so anyway, he brought us to a spring above all the sites, whereby we could water all the spikes sites. So after the microhydra was shown in the film, I think they showed the water system. So that was a I guess we were doing them simultaneously, but they came on the video first and second. So, uh, water anyway is important. <laughs> water is uh, is life. So, we harnessed the the spring, and that water, of course, is all underground. So, it uh, it's it's drinkable, and uh, and then we managed with the help of our local friends to cut through the jungle and bring pipes to all the water sites. So all of the sites are watered by gravity flow, so there's no energy that we have to use to, uh, to water everywhere with fresh water, and water as an abundance, especially during the, the rainy season. And, um, and so lights and uh, power and uh, water and then food. So we got a cow, and um, of course we have fruits growing, we have... Uh, maybe a dozen avocado trees that have been there for 20, 30, and 40, and 50 years. And so that is the first meal, I guess, avocados and, uh, and milk. <laughs> so we got a nice cow. Um, one of my students from Finland actually bought us a cow who had just calfed, and we have her calf. And uh, then those same students came again this year and bought us another cow who just calfed. So we have two cows and two calves. And and an abundance of milk, and for milk, of course, we make all the byproducts, cheese and yogurt and butter and, and ghee and so forth. And then uh, one of my students started the garden, and he saw that also from the watering. We needed the water to bring not only for drinking but for growing in, uh, in the right areas and so forth. So we developed um, a small organic garden. This year we built a large organic garden, a large greenhouse, um, and we grow everything, you know, Pineapples and uh, and all vegetables, tomatoes, eggplants, and cauliflowers, and uh, potatoes, and uh, cucumbers, and zucchinis, and you know the whole range. It's a 
It's a quite a fertile place. You can imagine if you drop a seed, you'll come back and it grows. The fence posts are made out of, out of, out of branches that are cut and then stuck in the ground, and they grow into trees. <laughs> that's the naturals. Yeah, we also plant rice. That's the thing. We, these things we're doing in California also with solar, and we have all organic gardens there at our monastery and, uh, and milk. We have cows. We have miniature cows from India there, miniature zebu cows, miniature Brahma cows. And now we have one Jersey cow also. And there we also are just now developing a cow-sharing type of arrangement whereby we can sell raw milk to the, in the neighborhood. People can't buy the milk from us, but they can buy a share of our cows, and thereby they can buy the milk and so forth. So um, there we're also rescuing cows from a local organic dairy that have three teats for one reason or another, and they're not suitable for the dairy, but we rescue them, and then we, we haul to break them and milk them and sell them for family cows to you know, local people to promote the idea of reinvention or reincarnation of the family cow idea. Um, in, in Costa Rica, they all have their family cows. So, um, um, but vegetables, uh, we, besides vegetables, which we grow, and besides milk and whatnot, we can't grow grains in, Costa, in, in, in California. The property's not uh, suitable for that, being on a um, hillside as it is. But we can grow grains, um, we grow rice. We harvested uh, 400 uh, kilos of rice this last year. And then corn, and from the corn, of course, we, we also make <coughs> corn flour and, and beans, so that we have the main, for a vegetarian, I think the main, uh, the meal is the grains, and then the vegetables are augment that and fruits. And, in milk, of course, we're lacto-vegetarian. So, uh, so we have a very uh, we have food, we have water, we have uh, vegetables, fruits, grains. We have power. We even have internet there now by by satellite, so that works uh, for communicating with our worldwide uh, congregation and uh, keeping them abreast and aware of uh, all that we're we're doing there. So they're both uh, works in progress in Costa Rica, more so. Um, and we are developing it as a, as a monastery and a monastic community, as we have in California, that really serves uh, two purposes, um, at least. One of them is to facilitate persons who want to live a monastic life, to give them an environment that's very suitable for that. Um, and um, and so we've, we, we've provided that. These are extremely auspicious settings that um, are totally recluse and, and uh, at the same time the monastics have the opportunity to be in touch with the world through the internet and to communicate what we're doing. And so I'm an author and my students help me in the monastic <coughs> communities to not only maintain the properties and so forth, but they edit my work and, and so forth and publish it and, and so on. And, and, and they invite the public, so it serves a second purpose. The first being, as I say, facilitating those who want to live a monastic life, which is not the largest number of people, but a nice group. <laughs> uh, and um, and in, in doing so, they facilitate the greater um, public, greater circle of people um, who work in the world and raise families and so forth. By way of... Um, creating a, a uh, spiritual oasis, if you will, that they can come to and spend time. And to get to either of these places, 
um, you unwind from the world just getting there um, uh, as you move away from the from the city more and more and into the country and so forth and upon arriving there i mean it's it's really a um, in a very simplistic sense a spiritual experience just to be there what to speak of taking part of what goes on there the spiritual practice and and i guess that's um, um, what i should talk about a little bit um, how a sustainable in a material sense type of community spirituality aside so to speak spiritual practice yoga and meditation can lead to um, self-realization so to come to the soul of of, of sustainability it's an interesting concept um, and um, the way it works is something like this it has its basis in in Revelation, in the Upanishads, for example, in, in the Bhagavad Gita, this concept. Uh, there in the Gita, Krishna speaks about sustainable life, materially speaking. And, and we should you know, footnote that, uh, that as sustainable as it can be. I mean, the sun will burn out one day, I would imagine, and, or something else may happen. Or, uh, and, and then our bodies have to die. Hmm? Our sense of self that is based on our desires, we're kind of a combination, make up our identity is, is a bundle of wants, desires. I'm a, I'm a father because I desire to, be, have a, to have a daughter, a wife because I desire to have a husband and, and so forth. I'm a this or that because I have interests concerned. My heart is in a certain place. I've given my heart somewhere, and it's identified me. It's made. It's an identity has come from that. So, materially speaking, we are our attachments. We are our uh, desires. They define us, and they confine us. They limit us from being all that we can be. They limit us from being objective. And um, and thereby, they limit us from seeing things as they really are. You follow me? If we're too much attached to something, then we can't, we can't see... The, you know, if you love someone, their faults become ornaments. <laughs> but only to you. Mother called her blind son Padmalochan. It means lotus eyes. So it means she has affection. So she's seeing it through... Affection is not a bad thing. I don't mean to say that. Love is a good thing, and our school of Vedanta is, is a school of is a Vedanta of love, and it it is it it's, it's and thereby it's a school that really promotes attachment more than it promotes detachment, but it promotes attachment to the right thing, how to be attached to the center, so to speak, rather than something on the circumference. Hmm? How to on the circumference become attached, and how that becomes a problem, and how by if they can they can direct their attachment to the center, then they can actually live together happily and in a meaningful way, sacrificing for uh, the center and thereby for one another and so forth. So it's a big topic. Um, there's a place for attachment, but where to be attached? Hmm? And and so in or it kind of a, a unbecoming type of attachment is when we become attached in such a way that we see 
ourselves as the center. We see the world as a place for us to that's for, for us to enjoy, to take advantage of, to use for the purpose the, of life that comes to mind to us based on our identity, which is based on desires and attachments. It's a real kind of a small world, actually. Hmm? The world of our mind, I want to say, is a very small world. And it's a very small idea on our part to think that everyone else should fit inside of it comfortably hmm? when we don't even fit comfortably within the world of our own mind. <laughs> so but this is the kind of foolishness with which we, to some extent, knowingly or unknowingly conduct ourselves in this uh, uh, predicament of, of material existence. And we don't have an objective view often of the whole of the picture, what it is, what the, what the big picture is. What are you trying to make a, you know, Academy Award-winning movie about out of one 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 frame of the film of our life hmm? that goes on forever? Although we'll become, we are born and we die, according to Bhagwat philosophy, we'll be born again. And why not? What is your life? materially speaking, as I said, but our attachments is fueled by desire. If the desire doesn't end, then why should life end? Life is desire. Think about it. Hmm? So if you have desire and your body dies, why do you think you will die? What is the life, the body or is it the desire hmm? that's fueling it? That's some kind of a vehicle through which you're expressing the desire. But what we see about matter is that it tends to come into uh, to, to form and, and then dissolve, right? Things come together and new house goes up, uh, it becomes old, it, 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 it gets sold, hmm? uh, and it has a life and it dies. But those basic ingredients, they come again together, don't they, and form again hmm? in another way. Hmm? So the matter, if you will, that seems to be forming and coming into shape and changing its shape. It's hard to hold on to. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Hmm? Hard to get a grip on material life. And we have desires in relation to these forms that are coming or going, so it's hard to stand with two feet on the ground. Because as soon as you got what you wanted, it turned into something else. Hmm? You bought what you wanted and it turned into a huge credit card bill. Hmm? It didn't turn out to satisfy you exactly the way you thought it would. And now you think you need something else on top of it, but you're still paying for something you don't even want anymore. <laughs> so this is a problem. Uh, this is kind of you know, updated version of material life, but it basically, metaphysically speaking, this is, this is what it is. It's, it's, we, we, and what's causing that matter to take shape, to take form? It's us. And what are we? We are a bundle of desire. We are life. We are, we are experiencing, and matter is being experienced by us. I've asked the question before. Would matter matter if there was no, one to, uh, no consciousness, no one to be aware of it? You follow me? We are aware. We are the experiencer. If you take out the experience, you take out consciousness, then even if matter mattered, who would know about it? <laughs> who would care? So we are the knower, we are the carer. Hmm? Of course, people want to philosophize poorly, in my estimation, 
that consciousness is nothing but matter, but that's a long way from proving that. <laughs> I'll tell you. you. Try to you know, put your head inside of neuro you know, science. There's a long, long, long way of ever proving that. And why would you want to? Um, that's another thing. And meanwhile, a whole other idea of what we are, that consciousness is, is, the, is the life behind matter. It animates matter. That can be demonstrated. And you would say, wait a minute, bring on the science here. How can it be dem- proven to me? Science prides itself in being objective. Of course, Thomas Kuhn would, would, you know, would differ with that, um, if you're a famous philosopher. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, it's only as objective as the human being can be objective. Hmm. Uh, and as, and, and, and as, as nature allows itself to be controlled, to perform a controlled experiment. Nothing wrong with science, that's all. Just when you think it's everything, that becomes a problem. Hmm? Um, when it's the last, when empiricism is the last word in, in, in truth, then, it, then it's ugly. Hmm? But it has its place. But what I'm saying to you is this, is that Vedanta, yoga, and real spiritual life, hmm? This requires real objectivity. And it was funny because if you think of it as, well, religion and spiritual life, that's a whole subjective realm. That's, you're getting off into your dreams here. It's only in your mind. Not that mind might be more important than matter. That's another thing. The world of the mind might be more real than the world of the, of, of, uh, the, the physical world. We have both aspects to our being, a psychic and a physical dimension. Hmm? Who's to say that the psychic dimension is less real than the physical dimension? Because dreams and thoughts come and go faster, perhaps? Hmm? We think it's less real, or physical things last for a longer time. So then we give more credence to that which endures, perhaps, and uh, maybe maybe good reason for that. We're seeking something that endures. We're seeking an enduring life. Hmm? We endure. But how to find that, and how to how to how to understand that objectively, rather than that being a subjective, interesting concept that can't be proven or demonstrated. What I want to say is that spiritual life, real spiritual life—I mean, not religious life, but spiritual life—and there's a there's a difference between mystic experience, spiritual experience, and adherence to religious principles and dogma, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but one. The religious life is, is, is supposed to lead to another, to tangible spiritual experience. And, and, the, and the experiential realm of, of, of uh, spiritual culture, mm-hmm. then we come to this real objectivity. And what do I mean by that? I mean this, that, that you become... Uh, you have to put yourself on the altar of sacrifice. You have to be... Uh, if you want to understand a thing properly, you have to step back from it and be objective. Okay? If you're too close, as I said, to attached, you have a subjective experience of it and, and, and see it through a certain lens. So yoga is about stepping back from the world, the world of the senses. We're informed about being and about nature, about the world through our senses and our minds and intellect. We, f- we gather information through the senses and we 
we reason and we think about it and so forth. Hmm? But our senses and our preoccupation with the objects that correspond with the senses, forms, tastes, smells, sounds, and so forth, corresponding with our ears and our nose and our, our tongues, our tactile sense, and so forth. Our predicament at present is that, and anybody can vouch for this, that the, the objects of senses seem to talk to us and say, touch me, smell me, hear me. And, and the, the senses, they pull on us in different directions at the same time. Hmm? The ear pulls us over here, the eye pulls us over there, the tongue may pull us over there. The stomach may say, I'm full. The tongue may say, eat more. You ever experience that? This is the problem, you see. The, the, the problem is that, that these senses are attached to sense objects and they're pulling us in different directions at the same time and taking us into a connection, a subjective, sensual connection with all that be, so to speak. And we're not detached enough and able to step back enough to see these objects for what they are. We're touching them, for example, we're hearing them, hearing the world, touching the world, seeing the world, some experience of what that is, some sense of what that is, is registering in, in, in the mind and a determination is being made by the mind. I like that one. I don't like that song. I like that song. I don't like that taste, but I like this one. So we create likes and dislikes, happies, sads, goods and bads, and all of this is relative to our senses, attachment to certain objects, what may be happy for you, may be sad for me, what may be good for you, may be bad for me. So which is it? Is the song good or bad? That all, is, is the taste good or bad? It's all relative to a particular tongue, a particular ear, a particular mind. Hmm? So it's not an objective you know, understanding of it. It's just, your subjective understanding is good. My subjective understanding is that it's bad. Yours is that it's hot, mine is that it's cold. We're not getting... A, a, a real objective reading of the nature of the experience of being or the, of, of the world by this attachment and this pull by the senses towards their objects and yoga is about well, controlling that and stepping back from that. Yoga, you're not allowed to eat more if the stomach says more, even though the tongue says yes. You didn't know that about yoga, did you? <laughs> Yeah, that's part of yoga. Hmm? <laughs> you're not allowed to do that in yoga. You're not, it's not a rule, but you learn how not to. And so you're learning how to be objective here. You're learning how to step back from your attachments. Hmm? And it's very um, ruthless, actually. Really, yoga practice, in, in its, as it develops, it comes on slow, you know, lose weight or, you know, better sex life or whatever. It's built for different... You know, it's good for a lot of things. It's, it's good for all kinds of things. But what is it really for? It's hard. If you get involved, you see it's really about coming to a very objective position from which to view the world. Hmm? To be, move away systematically. Hmm? And it's an ancient system that's very powerful. And it has results consistently for thousands of years. Move away from your attachments. Hmm? Step back from them and the identity that's fostered by them. An identity that cannot be sustained. It's not sustainable. Hmm? 
You cannot sustain that identity. So the first thing that we want to talk about sustainability in this world, we have to admit that we are not sustainable as we think of ourselves. As Bob or Tom or Mary or Sue, as from Costa Rica or California or North Carolina, as Indian, American, Negro, Caucasian, these identities are here today and gone tomorrow like every other form in this world. That is not sustainable. So then why talk about sustainability hmm? at all? As I said, the sun will burn out, the whole thing. It can't be sustained. So why even bother to talk about it? Hmm? Take what you can, get what you, <laughs> you can now and enjoy it. And some people, of course, live like that. But hmm, this idea, the idea is that I still feel like I'm sustainable. Yeah, I, I know I'm going to die, but I, I don't feel like I'm going to die. I'm 60 years old this year, and I don't feel like, I, you know, I thought I would, like I think 60-year-old people, you know, feel. <laughs> or I did, but how I thought they felt. Hmm? We feel young, right? We always feel, uh, we feel we are young. This is the point. There's a strong sense and in intuition in human society that we endure. Now, intuition may be suspect. Right? You may intuit that you know, the next turn we, is, is where to go, and you may be wrong. Uh, and you may be right sometimes. So we don't take, can't take intuition always so seriously because somebody has an intuition that they live forever. But the fact here is that everybody has an intuition that they endure. Everybody. This sense is throughout all human society. Some people philosophize it away. They still have a sense about it. So an intuition that's so predominant in human society, from undeveloped human society, like tribal society, if you could call it undeveloped, to complex, less complex, let's say, maybe happier, to complex, so-called civilized human society, we find throughout the whole range of human society this sense that there's something more to life than what I can gather with my senses, and it's me. There's something about me that's enduring. Hmm? That enduring happiness exists. Comprehensive knowing exists. I mean, if you want to be perfectly happy, you have to have perfect knowledge, right? Because action is informed by knowledge, so if you have imperfect knowledge, you act accordingly. And if you have perfect knowledge and you, and, and, and you want to be perfectly happy, then you have to have the perfect knowledge to arrive at that. So we all want to be happy. Every human being wants to be perfectly happy. And some people say, well, you can't be. Some people say you can be. But the interesting thing is, and they think, you know, those who say you can't be, they think that those who say you can be are crazy. You can't be perfectly happy, some people say. But those who say that, they still try. Everyone is still trying. So who's crazy? <laughs> those who say you can't get it, but try for it? Or those who say you can and try for it? The point I'm making here is that there's a, throughout human society, there's a sense that there's something more than meets the eye. There's something, there's a sense that there's something beyond the senses. And I'm trying to get at it with my senses, but that's not helping me to get there. Hmm? And yoga is about working with those senses and mind in such a way as to get at it, to go in a reverse way 
rather than going out into the world to define myself and be all that I can be. I said the other night, there's a sense that arises in human society that we could do anything. Birds don't think, gosh, I wish I could fly to the bottom of the ocean like those fish. They don't think, fish don't think, wish I could fly up and high in the sky. Why do we as human beings think, God, I wish I could go to the bottom of the ocean, see what's down there. I wish I could fly into outer space and see what's out there. Why do we think like this? Why, and why do we therefore have airplanes and spaceships and submarines? The reason is this, because there's an evolution going on here of our, of our being. And human life is a, is a more complex form of life that affords facilities that other forms of life don't afford. They afford, afford us reasoning capacity. And more than that, they afford us the capacity to do something voluntarily, to make a sacrifice, which is the beginning of love. Hmm? We're not as oppressed by our material condition as units of consciousness as, uh, as let's say, the beast, who is just driven by hunger hmm, to eat and can't say, oh, well, you first. Why don't you, you must be more hungry than me to a fellow lion. You eat more. Yeah. It's not exactly like... We can do this in human society. We can begin to volunteer and, 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 and sacrifice and, and by that we can begin to grow in a mystical way because you wouldn't think you would grow by giving things away that you would get by giving. Rationally, that doesn't... Mathematically, that doesn't make sense, right? If you give away that you... If you, if you have five and you give away four that you'll have more... <laughs> That's not, you know, math doesn't tell us that. That means that science can't tell us everything. Hmm? Because that's true. If you do give away, you will get more. Hmm? The more you become a giver, the more you grow. Hmm? It may not be tangible. You cannot hold it up and say, see what I got. But people will look at you and say, you're more full. Hmm? You're more evolved. Who's more evolved, Hitler or Mother Teresa? I mean... I mean it because Darwin said we really evolve by becoming a bigger beast. Hmm? The more you take, the more you survive, the better, the, the more fit you are. But we don't really think like that, do we? We don't think that the fittest person is the, is the, is the biggest beast. We think that the kindest person is the more fit person, the more full person, the person who has something. How otherwise, how can they give? Hmm? So these are, you know, just, and these are universal truths. I'm not telling you anything that, that we all don't know. We're just thinking about it, hmm? having a conversation about it, about the nature of our experience that we call life. And the experience is that there's, there's a strong sense in human society that's confirmed. Hmm? Not only is there a sense, an intuition, that there's more to life that, that can be had by taking in lesser, less complex forms of life, it's thought, the more you take, the more you get. We come to human life and we think, hmm, there's, there's a possibility we could get more by not taking. In fact, by giving. A sense there's something invisible about the whole thing that uh, is mystical, that, uh, that if we went about it in a different way, we would actually be more. And, and it's confirmed in our everyday experience. If we give, we feel more full. We feel more complete. If we look beyond our small sense of self and become a patriotic person, we become a bigger, well, you know, we, we identify rather than just with myself, with our nation, 
Kennedy said, think not what the nation can do for you, but what you can do for your country. This seems a broad idea. The self is becoming bigger. Hmm? Kennedy was asking, become bigger people. Give. Hmm? Right? You know, you know, Mr. Obama says you know, something similar. You know, and in so many ways, these, this, the idea is, it's, it's just a universal truth. But we speak about it more in poetic language than in the language of math. For example, which is a which is a language for controlling. Poetry is a language for participating. You participate. You become part of the of the of the forest, and you see it in a different way. And then you you you, you take the root and you attach it to a to a stump, and it becomes a sculpture and has uh, art and poetry. Uh, Music and these things, they're languages also, but they're participatory ways of speaking about the world. Like in Hinduism, we speak about the gods and the goddesses. Hmm? And people say, where are they now? Hmm? It's a way of speaking about life. And so while our material sense of self is not sustainable, we have a sense that we, that we are sustaining things for that matter. <laughs> That the world is going on because of us. We're, we're consciousness. It's moving because of us. And that, we, that there is a sustainable life. There is an enduring life. And we're after that. Hmm? So in one sense, no, it can't be sustained. And we're faced with that, but we, 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 we think there must be more to it than that. And there is. And yoga and spirituality, this is what it's about. Hmm? And so how by... The, the question is tonight... How, by living a sustainably speaking, as far as possible, material life, can you arrive at real sustainability beyond death? To know yourself beyond death, to know what you are, hmm? and that you live and experience that you live despite the death of the body and the demise of a particular materially um, packaged personality based on attachments and desires and so forth. And what is that life, that enduring life, that self that endures? Hmm? And how happy is it? Hmm? I'll tell you how happy it is. I'll give you one idea. If you could take all of the happiness derived from interacting, the interaction of the senses with sense objects, which is where we derive our pleasure, right? touching, feeling, tasting, smelling. If you could take all of that, all of it together, all of it, Put it in a big syringe. Imagine. Inject yourself with that all at once. It wouldn't compare it to a tiny atomic particle if you could even divide such a thing as the bliss of the self. What, what you are. What you actually be. Hmm? You are a unit of, of happiness now in a state of potential. Hmm? Not only do you endure. You could have it in... You could, there could be an existence... I suppose, that no one was conscious of. Hmm? But if you have a conscious existence, if you're conscious, then you have to have an existence too. Hmm? You could have a conscious existence that didn't necessarily be joyful. But if you had a joyful existence, if you were joy, if by nature you were of joy, you would have to exist and you would have to be conscious. Hmm? You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying the self is sat, it exists, 
this chit, it's cognitive of the, cognizant of the fact that it exists and has a purpose for existing, which is no purpose at all. It's joy. Hmm? Love, it exists for love, for joy. There's no purpose. The world has no meaning. Because hmm? love knows no meaning. Hmm? Hmm? Love knows no reason. How, the question is, by living a materially sustainable life, we can come to experience what is, what is self-sustaining and enduring, an enduring unit of happiness that is our very self. Hmm? The idea is given in Bhagavad Gita, as I mentioned. There, it speaks about gods, and goddesses in a poetic way. It speaks about the nature of life. They're gods of... Of learning and uh, um, actually, goddess of learning, Saraswati, and there's god of the sun, and there's the god of the the air, the wind, and the water. And these are just are these all just ancient superstitious ideas, or is there some kind of principle behind this? That is, it, is it just a way of speaking about life that perhaps explains better what life is being a participatory type of language, how to participate with the world, rather than to explain it by trying to control the world, for example, through science and math. You understand what I'm saying? Hmm? You can't control it. I mean, it's such a small thing. Knowledge is really such a small thing. I mean, what knowledge we can gather with the mind and senses and the extension of the senses through microscopes and telescopes and computers and so forth. I mean, the whole show could change with one meteor, you know, the whole thing. And what goes on here, what goes on ten zillion, you know, miles away, is it the same, does it work the same? Uh, the laws of nature are, you know, we call them laws. We give them names. So by math, we can know something. I mean, can you know what a line is? You can know what a line is in terms of how to use it for a certain purpose, but what is it? What is a line? We, we have to look at it from dot to dot. So if you look at it from, from the vantage point of one dot, it, it will look like one. If you look at it from another point, you're looking at a different vantage point now. You can't, you, can, you cannot even understand what a line is. You can understand how to use a line for a particular purpose, but what it is, the why question is not going to be answered by math. Some of the how questions might be answered, but we're troubled by the why question in human life. We're, that's what we're troubled by. Why? Why? Why do I be? Why? What is my purpose? Why? This is the question that comes in human consciousness. In animal consciousness, the how question, how to eat, how to sleep, how to, make, how to defend myself. And there's a system built into nature to answer that. Skunk has a tail to defend itself. It's built in. It knows how. Hmm? The bird knows what to eat, when, where to find it. It's all built in. How to sleep, how to mate, what time, when. Hmm? No confusion. We're confused about these things because we're not answering the why question in the way that nature has provided for us to answer that. And this is what the Gita says. It says, nicely and poetically, it says... This world came into being. Humans came into being along with sacrifice, the Gita says. These things came together. Hmm? 
And by sacrifice, they would know. Hmm? And they would be able to sustain themselves and be all that they could be. Hmm? And then there's the talk about the God of the sun and the God of the moon and the, the God of the... And, all, and the, what it means is something like this. It says, look, materially speaking, we have eyes and because we have eyes, we can see. Hmm? But the eyes themselves are dependent upon light, right? In order to see. So the eyes that we have are dependent upon sun in order to work effectively. So we have a relationship with nature. Hmm? And we should learn to acknowledge that relationship. Now, if you live acknowledging that your capacity to touch, to hear, to see is one that is dependent upon something other that is really greater, in a sense, than myself, without which I wouldn't be able to. You start to live in a gracious kind of a way in life. You, know, you start to live with some, some, some gratitude, hmm? some, some appreciation for nature, that you're participating in it. You're not thinking, I'll just control the sun for my purpose. Hmm? Sun's good because I have sun I can see. So let's see if we could capture the sun and put it in a lab. Then you know maybe we could cure blindness and people. What are they? What are they going to see for? What? What's the? Per- in this kind of effort to control, the whole purpose of seeing is lost, and the limitation of our eyes to see, even with sun, this is lost. Hmm? No matter how well you could see, how bright the light, could you see yourself, what you really are, with the eyes only? Hmm? No. So this is this kind of a backwards way of going. And the Gita, the yoga tradition, spiritual tradition is speaking about a, a very different way of approaching life that causes the world, if it has anything to say, to want to talk to us. Hmm? If your relationship with the world is participatory, then there's reciprocation from the world. Hmm? If the universe has anything to say, well, if you approach it with a, in a loving spirit, in a giving spirit, rather than to take and maybe it will talk back to you and tell you what it wants, what its purpose is. So this is what the Gita is talking about. So it speaks about living a sustainable life materially. And the center of that is, is some sense of sacrificing. You know, I mean, you have a practical experience. You live at home, you turn a switch, you get light. You turn a valve, you get water, right? You open the mailbox, you get a bill. You know, so there's somebody on the other end, right? And you got to pay that bill. <laughs> That's called sacrifice. Then the lights will go on, and then the water will flow. And there's somebody on the other end. So there's something on the other end behind all this. There's some great consciousness, some some reservoir of consciousness that we're but a spark of. After all, we can't be the whole thing. Well, why are we why are we so confused? We can't be the center. We're like separated, distanced from the center, so to speak and confused about how the whole thing works. We're trying to be the center. We're off-center. So, so to be centered, this is important. So this is yogic. So, so to acknowledge that we have a relationship with nature of indebtedness to nature. Then there's a, this is, so this is the basis then of the whole sustainable you know, movement in, in, in modern society. Hmm? Moving away from this idea of taking from nature and exploiting, but that we... We have a relationship and we should give back and so forth. And, and so this, it, when you start to live in this way, the point is, 
And then you, you know, you, you, you offer a prayer to the river before you put the tube in there, you know, and you, you just take enough so that nobody's disturbed. And you've got a higher purpose that you're trying to accomplish by being, living sustainably in the first place. Because you know, well, you can't sustain, materially speaking, yourself forever anyway. So, I should, the point is, if you live in the world in a sattvic way, in a sustainable way, then the secrets of life will begin to, to, to of the universe, will, will be revealed to you. Like, what is that saying? Um, what did it say? If you love someone, then they'll tell you all their secrets. So to approach the world with love, and love means what? Love means sacrifice. Ask any mother, any father. Love means sacrifice. That's what it's about. It arises out of that. When it becomes very intense, then the sense that it's a sacrifice is, is, is forgotten. Right? You become that thing. You become that love. But if we step back and look at it, it has its beginnings in, in sacrifice. It's a giving. Love is giving. So life moves progressively by giving, not by taking. Not by controlling, but by participating. And so in the yogic world, right, the idea is that there, we should live, a, as materially speaking, a life that's sustainable as possible. It makes as much sense in consideration of the way nature works. So we can listen to nature, we can give back to nature, we can, we can take from nature in, st- in such a way that, um, that it's, that's, that's, that's warranted. There's a quota for that. She's willing to give to some extent. But she has a purpose of her own. And it's not the purpose that we just figured out in our mind based on our attachments and our sense of who we are and so forth. Hmm? It's a much bigger purpose. We can come, and, and, and so by starting to live a sustainable life and, and, the consciousness and, and, and living in the consciousness that that involves, you see, we start to become givers in a real sense, right? And we start to grow. And the world starts to speak to us in a way that it wouldn't, wouldn't otherwise. And what happens in the long term of this kind of lifestyle. A sattvic lifestyle, it promotes happiness and knowledge, real understanding. And you, then you become gradually uh, convinced of the idea that there's more to life that, than meets the eye. And that by living a materially sustainable and giving life as far as possible, you start to grow. And in time, what happens is the sense of self... Hmm, or the self, that unit of consciousness that we are, it starts to come out. Hmm? And then you start to become really uh, interested in, 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 in honing that, so to speak. So then you might take up a particular yoga practice. You might attach yourself to a teacher who is, an, who is a deep experiencer and learn how to continue to give in a systematic way to the center. Hmm? With everything that you do and all your thoughts and all your, you just put all your desires in there, and and gradually that which is actually sustainable, you, hmm? yourself, an enduring unit of consciousness, comes to the to the fore, and and then then there's a way, of course, <laughs> that we can that that self within the context of of knowing yourself. 
different from matter, that you can be a giver in a yoga context. And that's what bhakti is about. Therefore, it's a post-liberated type of affair. And, um, uh, and, and you can thereby enter into, so to speak, a world of, of, uh, uh, a world of love and, 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 uh, and knowing that we call lila. Lila is one thing, karma is another. Both movements. Karma is a movement out of, out of ignorance, out of attachment. And when you move in that way, you owe. Because you're, it's about taking. When you take, then you owe. You're indebted. Hmm? And as you give, then the more you give, the more you become a lover. And the more you become a lover, the more you become... Hmm? There's knowledge in love, you know. You know what to do. When you love, you know what to do. It's a kind of automatic knowledge. You become a special kind of knower, and you and then you are. If you do it yogically, I want to say, like in the bhakti tradition, then your life becomes play, not work. Hmm? It becomes play. Hmm? That is lila. Hmm? That is what it means, lila. And to see the world from the perspective of lokavatu lila kaivalayam, the world. It is born out of Leela. It's called Shristi Leela, a type of Leela, of, of Vishnu. Hmm? And Vishnu comes into the world of Leela also, in different avatars. Tell us about the world beyond Shristi, beyond the coming and going of the world, the coming and going of material forms. Hmm? And how to enter, that's what bhakti is about, how to enter into that. Hmm? Uh, that is called then Krishna Leela. That is a big topic. We can't go there entirely tonight, but. Anyway, I try to say something about sustainability. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Any question? How do you spell Leela? L-I-L-A. Leela. It means divine play. It means... It means that... It's a vantage point from which to... To view the world, actually, hmm. Leela. and um, because it's all centered on giving, there's no taking involved. It's it's a it's a way of learning how to give to the center. Just like if you give to your stomach, then all the food will be distributed to the rest of your body, right? If you give it to your ear, that won't work. If you give it just to your hand, that won't work. So it's just a system for learning how to give to the center in such a way that everything will be nourished. And then you see the reason behind it, why everything moves. It's all moving out of play. Hmm? It's, not so, it's not as big of a deal as you think it is. All those crises and so forth that come to us in our lives. So, what else? Another question? Thought? Comment? Some advice? Yeah, anything? Have you ever said about... Uh Creating biodiesel for your place in Costa Rica. Yeah, it's a, it's a, we've, we, we, we've thought about it. We haven't gotten too far. The economics of it are questionable. Uh, the amount of corn that would have to be grown, for example, and uh, uh, but it's uh, we're still we uh, we mostly ride horses, so it's not that much of an issue. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, biodiesel is an interesting concept. Anything else?
Yes. How yeah. does your uh, your theory about knowledge compare to ignorance is bliss? Okay, ignorance is bliss. That's true. There's a certain kind of bliss in ignorance. And um, as much as there's happiness in not knowing about something, hmm, um, but the problem is that not knowing about it, if it's important, may ultimately become a problem for you. So you can ignore the problems of life and be in ignorance, ignorance, you can ignore them. Hmm? And you can be in some kind of a state of bliss. Hmm? You could, you could, I'll give you an example. You could take intoxication and it could feel blissful. I've tried it. I've been around a while, so not lately, <laughs> but a long time ago. Uh, uh, so... Uh, 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 but there's, that's problematic, right? So there is a kind of a bliss to ignorance, but it's not something that can be sustained. It's not enduring. Hmm? So not dealing with the problem, ignoring it, the problem of life, hmm? uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, a kind of happiness. But, um, but understanding the problem and, and making a solution to it is, um, affords enduring bliss. And in that bliss, there's a kind of ignorance, interestingly enough. In the highest bliss, there's a kind of ignorance. And that is, interestingly enough, what takes what is the full idea of Leela. So you have these two ends of the spectrum. There's ignorance, material ignorance, that brings a kind of bliss, a kind of happiness that won't endure and will be problematic, ultimately. And then there's a moving away from that that takes some effort. That's the cultivation of knowledge and so forth. And if that knowledge is cultivated in the context of giving in a, in a life of devotion, you end up on the other end of the spectrum in an enlightened condition where there's a kind of ignorance that affords intimacy with the Absolute. What I mean by that is if you want to get close to God, it would be hard if you knew that like, I'm not, but let's say I was God. And I and you realized, oh my God, that's God. You might want to go, oh my God. It kind of makes you move back. The knowledge that I'm God, which I'm not, might make you go, oh my God. Right? It, it causes some distance. So, But if you want to have intimacy with me, and I'm God, which I'm not. <laughs> if you want to have intimacy with me, then some type of ignorance about my Godhood has to come into play hmm? in order for there to be intimacy. So there is a plane of experience, and this is what we call Krishna. You've seen Krishna depicted in art, for example. And somebody would say, that's God. You go, that's God? You're just playing a flute? Dancing with some cows? That's God? And, but the, the idea of it is that, philosophically speaking, if the finite, us, let's say, wants to get close to the infinite, infinite, the infinite will have to take on a finite-like appearance for that to be possible. Hmm? So Krishna is, a, is, is, is the experience of mystics who want this intimacy with the Absolute. And the Absolute appears in a form, youth, which is 
most desirable. He's eternally youthful. His color, sham, it's called, the dark color. It's the color of every, in the Indian aesthetics, uh, every, every, um, emotion has a color. So, sham is the color of romantic love. Krishna is the color of romantic love, ever youthful. Everything about the picture of Krishna, you see, it has some, some meaning. It's a way of speaking about the absolute. And it's the experience also of mystics, wherein the absolute takes a finite like form for the sake of intimacy between the finite and the infinite. So there's a plane where, where souls, if you will, individual souls, are relating with the center, the source of consciousness, and they don't even know that they're relating with the source of consciousness. Hmm? And that's blissful. That's a, that's a kind... It, they don't know because if they knew, it would cause some, some distance and less bliss, less, less intimacy. They're enlightened. It's a kind of a divine ignorance, and that's considered to be the most blissful condition, divine ignorance. We enter into Leela with the play with the Absolute, where... Uh, anyway, it's a big topic, as you can see, a very high kind of theological <laughs> issue, but it's blissful. Ignorance is bliss. Right. And there's a place in between for knowledge. You get knowledge to get out of the ignorance of material bliss, and you go into a spiritual ignorance, which is blissful and which retires knowledge to a large extent. So, anything else? I don't want to take up too much of your time. I came a little late also. I spoke for a while, so we stopped there, and I think there'll be some some refreshments and uh, it's been refreshing meeting with all of you thank you very much thank you.